We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. Hello, hello. You are listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast bringing you big ideas from the small island of Tasmania. Each week we bring you something interesting that's science, technology, engineering or maths related. And this week we are bringing you the M in STEM. The show is proudly supported by Edge Radio, Hobart's premium youth station. So be sure to check out their website for more information, edgeradio.org.au. I'm Neve Chapman, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Sophie Calabretto. And before we begin today's episode, I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording. That's the Palawa people for me as I record on Lutruwita. And acknowledge the traditional owners of the land where you are listening. On behalf of everyone, I pay my respects to elders past and present. So I'm really glad that Sophie's here because every time we're doing a maths episode, I get palpitations and I get really anxious. And I'm sure many of our listeners do too. But Sophie is an awesome communicator and our guest today, Luke, is also awesome. And I've never thought about the maths aspect of this topic before. So Sophie, can you fill us in a little bit on what we'll be talking about? I can. Thanks, Neve. So Luke is an applied mathematician whose research focuses on wave science and sea ice modeling. So he combines analytical mathematics with advanced computational methods to tackle real world problems. Um, And these problems have to do with waves and sea ice. And we'll get into that a little bit later. And one of the things that Luke has worked on in particular is the catastrophic ice shelf disintegration in polar regions. But before we talk about ice shelves, I do need to differentiate because Coming into this episode, I didn't know anything about ice, so we're all learning here. But sea ice and ice shelves are not the same thing. So from my understanding, sea ice is just frozen ocean water. So it forms and it grows and it melts strictly in the ocean. Um, And it's seasonal in places, right? So there are places where in the winter months it forms and it grows and in the summer it melts. But there are also certain regions where sea ice is present all the time. So an ice shelf is like a floating extension of land ice and that's formed by things like glaciers and ice streams and they like slowly ooze their way out into the ocean and they form these things on the edge of land masses and then if one of those ice shelves is to break off like that's an iceberg whereas if you had like a chunk of sea ice floating around that's called an ice flow I think Luke but it's not of course we're talking about fluids but this isn't fluid flow as an F-L-O-W this is an ice flow as an F-L-O-E just to make everyone very confused so Getting back to Luke, can you tell us to start off with where this wave science comes into your sea ice modeling? Like, why do we care about sea ice and waves and how they interact with each other? Okay, all right. Uh, a really good introduction that you've given to my research today. Yeah, I'm interested in ocean wave interactions with two types of ice. Um, and yeah, you, you uh, cover those two types of ice pretty well, I'd say. Um, perhaps I, I should just. Uh, talk a little bit about ocean waves to begin with because there are lots and lots of different types of waves in the ocean and uh, I'm looking at a particular class and um, these are waves that are created by storms over the ocean. Now the storms of the ocean are incredibly fierce, much fiercer than the fiercest ones that we can get on land and the winds within those storms they are transferring their energy into the ocean and in particular they're creating waves on the surface of the ocean. 
And those waves are stores of a tremendous amount of energy. And they then uh, travel all the way around the ocean, vast distances, uh, and, and really retain a lot of that energy as they're traveling. And they don't have to be fed by winds as they're going. So it's a mechanism for carrying energy around the globe. Now, the waves keep going until a number of different things happen. Uh, probably the most familiar one is when the waves get to the coast and then the waves break and that's the end of their lives. And um, I think we'll always be familiar uh, with that. Another way that the waves can die out is when they reach the ice-covered ocean. And um, by ice-covered ocean, here I really mean uh, the ocean which is covered with sea ice, which, as you said, Sophie, is the frozen layer of um, ocean water which is, surrounds the Antarctic continent. So it, it, it's pretty thin. We're talking tens of centimetres, a few metres here, but it stretches vast distances. Uh, in the winter, uh, the sea ice cover will double the size of the Antarctic. Now, waves don't just die when they reach the uh, ice-covered ocean. They can keep on uh, travelling for tens or hundreds of kilometres until they die out. And they die out because they're interacting with the sea ice cover. Now, it, it gets a bit complicated at this point, but there are different ways in which the waves and the sea ice can interact together. So um, if we're thinking about the impacts of the waves on the sea ice, we can get the waves driving creation of more sea ice, uh, and that particularly happens in the winter, but the waves can also have a destructive impact on the ice cover. They can break it up and make it more susceptible to melting and um, also being moved around by winds and currents. So the stuff that you've just described to me sounds very environmental, right? But you're a mathematician, Luke. You're an applied mathematician. So how do you use maths to tackle these kinds of problems? Uh, in the sort of problems that I've been describing to you, there are dynamic interactions going on everywhere. Now, just in general, I should say that um, as an applied mathematician, we want to start somewhere with a problem, real-world problem, so that is one where we can't detect any mathematics, and it's our job to take that problem and turn it into a mathematical problem. So maybe I can just um, tell you about one of the sorts of problems that I look at with uh, ocean waves interacting with sea ice cover. So we can have what I would describe as a local problem, which is where we have um, the, the waves interacting with just one of these ice flows, if you correctly uh, termed them earlier, so the, uh, or, or just a small number of them. Now, the waves are driving motion of the ice flows. And at the same time, the ice flows are affecting the wave motion. And for just a few flows, that effect is probably only going to be quite small. And we can solve those problems. We can formulate equations which describe how the, the waves um, travel and about how the uh, ice flows respond to the wave motion. And we can couple those together. That's, that coupling really makes it uh, an interesting mathematical problem. 
Um, but we can then solve it mathematically. And it's probably going to involve some computation, level of computation there. But then the next problem that we want to solve is for uh, waves traveling over a very large distance through the ice-covered ocean. And there are now going to be so many ice flows that there's no chance of solving the problem mathematically or computationally. It's what we would refer to as a global problem. So we have to have mathematical methods to extrapolate from the local problems to that small effect onto the away the waves eventually dying out after tens or hundreds of kilometers. Now I'm, I'm interested in the impact of the waves on the sea ice so that we can um, look at the properties of the sea ice in a more informed way later. Because if um, the sea ice uh, has grown because of waves, then the ocean surface is going to respond in a very different way. So um, this is one of the, the main reasons that we care about sea ice, because ice is white. And that means that it reflects the sun's rays. If we have sea ice there, then we have that reflection, and it cools the ocean. If we don't have the sea ice there, then we have this dark ocean surface which absorbs the sun's rays and it hints up the ocean. So it's important to be able to uh, predict where the sea ice is going to be. And in order to be able to do that, we need to know about its properties. How is it going to respond uh, to forcing from winds, uh, from currents? Uh, how is it going to respond to changes in the temperature? So thinner ice will melt much quicker than thicker ice. Um, so these are all reasons uh, for being able to predict the properties of the sea ice. And that is why we need to know about the wave interactions. Thanks, Luke. That actually puts things in a lot of context and really provides perspective to why this mathematical problem is so complex, but also so important to have many different perspectives looking at it. You're listening to That's What I Call Science. My name's Dr. Neve Chapman, and I'm joined with my co-host, Dr. Sophie Calabretto, and our expert guest, Luke Bennett. Please stay with us, and we'll be talking about more of Luke's work in just a moment. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and today we're talking about sea ice. My name is Sophie Calabretto, and I'm joined by Neve Chapman, along with our expert guest, Luke Bennett from the University of Adelaide. So we've talked about sea ice, and we've talked about ice shelves a little bit, so that's really what I want to focus on now. So you were involved in a recent-ish, is what I've called it, study, I think it was 2018, looking at Antarctic ice shelf disintegration triggered by sea ice loss and ocean swirl. So I had a little bit of a look at the paper and there seemed to be many factors involved in this ice shelf disintegration, including things like atmospheric factors, ocean factors, as well as the sea ice and the ice shelf factors themselves. So you worked on the modeling, uh, modeling the interaction between waves and the sea ice and then also waves and the ice shelves, from my understanding. How do you even go about constructing these kinds of models? So you sort of talked about the local problem of wave interaction with ice flows and then turning that into sort of a global problem where you've got, okay, now I've got a whole bunch of ice flows and what's happening there. Is it a similar approach when you're looking at this ice shelf stuff? Well, really um, uh, divided it into two separate models. Mm -hmm. um, at the time that the, the opportunity came up to uh, work on this problem, 
Uh, I'd, I'd spent um, a number of years developing models of waves propagating through uh, sea ice cover on the ocean. Uh, and uh, the team that I joined up with for this paper, they were very interested in the uh, ice shock disintegration events around the Antarctic Peninsula. So the Antarctic Peninsula is the most, most northerly part of the Antarctic continent and it's experienced um, a lot of warming uh, in comparison to the rest of the Antarctic coastline. Uh, and it's experienced a high level of sea ice loss. Uh, and um, these catastrophic ice shelf disintegration events. So what he said um, about all of these different processes contributing towards the ice shelf disintegration is, is absolutely correct. Um, they had been um, severely weakened by the rising temperatures. But um, the, uh, the question that we were looking at is, why did they go from uh, being seemingly stable um, despite its weakening to this very sudden large scale disintegration. And um, yeah, the, my collaborators uh, had noted a correlation between the disintegration events and uh, loss of sea ice close to the ice shelf fronts uh, in the periods um, just before the disintegration events. And the role that I played is um, being able to actually quantify how much uh, wave energy would get through the uh, sea ice cover that was there. So I've been able to predict in the first instance how much wave energy would reach the ice shelves. And then um, what was uh, a new modeling direction for me at the time was to model the interactions between the waves and the ice shelves, and so predicting the impacts of the waves on the ice shelves. So could I just confirm that when you mean sea ice shelf disintegration, that means like when we think of those really harrowing pictures of like chunks of the ice shelf like breaking off, or is it more of a subtle breakdown? No, 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 it, 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 it's just catastrophic. Um, so uh, there are a number of stages of it. Um, um, uh, eventually, well, eventually, over a relatively short amount of time, probably days, um, most of the ice shelf would be lost. So it would break up and uh, go into the ocean. Now, the reason that this is important is because ice shelves have a, a really important role to play uh, in the, uh, the climate system, in particular in relation to sea level rise. So a common misconception is that um, uh, the ice shelf disintegrations directly increase sea level rise. Well, uh, it, it, they don't because the ice shelves are floating. So uh, all of that ice going into the ocean doesn't contribute. However, what happens is that the loss of the ice shelves means that the, uh, the ice sheet that um, they are protecting from the ocean much more rapidly travel into the ocean because that ice sheet is initially on land then that ice going into the ocean can push up sea levels. Uh, I want to know whether um, the sea ice that is present at any particular time will be enough to prevent the waves reaching the ice shelves. Uh, and the second thing is 
um, will the waves be able to have uh, a big impact on the ice shelves? So it's probably worth saying, that we're emphasizing at this point, that uh, ice shells are very different to sea ice. The ice shells are very thick. So here we're talking hundreds of meters, a kilometer or so. Uh, and um, they can cover uh, large areas as well. Uh, the largest ones are the size of small countries. Awesome. So I also have like another question about the types of data that you use to inform your models. Because um, I know that sometimes when uh, scientists or mathematicians, as is the case here, um, sit in our lab, we're often using like simulated data or data that's like a little bit old. Um, but with something like this, I wondered like, are you using satellite data the number of sea ice flows cubes uh, chunks or um and then like you know tracking a wave that starts propagating in the ocean until it arrives or is it more simulated like i wouldn't have the foggiest notion of how to even think about what types of data are informing your models we take any good data that we can get our hands on uh, and um, this is a rapidly evolving field, uh, and um, new ideas uh, are coming out all the time, improved data sets are coming out all the time, particularly on the wave interactions with sea ice side. That's more advanced uh, in this respect than the wave impacts on the ice shell side. Um, but uh, perhaps I can just describe to you um, some of the advances that have been made recently on measuring waves in the sea ice cover. So um, people have designed special waveways that uh, they attach on the surface of ice flows. So they have to go uh, on an icebreaker, go all the way down to the Antarctic. Then they have to get the icebreaker to uh, stop next to the ice flow. Probably a couple of scientists had to uh, jump up the side <laughs> onto an ice flow, um, or, or maybe just get a crane and um, attach uh, one of these instruments to the flow. And then they'll do that in a number of positions. And uh, then the waves will come through, the boys will make recordings of the properties of the waves, and then they will relay that data through satellites uh, to someone sitting on the, the, the icebreaker or someone on land on their computer. Um, another method which um, we're just developing at the moment is to use a camera system the sides of an icebreaker. So we have a stereo system and uh, as the icebreaker is traveling through the ice cover, it's recording all the time. And then we can use some mathematical techniques in order to reconstruct the wave field from those camera images. And then we can analyze those and um, also um, uh, we get uh, information on the ice cover at the same time. And uh, that helps us gain more understanding about the way the waves travel through the ice cover and how the properties of the ice cover affect the way that the waves travel. And then I will try and use all of that data uh, to validate uh, my mathematical models or um, perhaps decide that uh, my mathematical models uh, need uh, a bit more finessing, some extra physics put in there. Okay, great. Stick with us for part three as we delve more into the implications of Luke's work.
You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and we're talking about modelling ice shelf disintegration. My name is Sophie Calabretto, and I'm joined by Neve Chapman, along with our expert guest, Luke Bennett, from the University of Adelaide. So, Luke, we know that human activities have increased greenhouse gas concentrations, which is the most significant driver of observed climate change, which causes things like melting ice and rising sea levels. So in the work that you've done, or just mathematically from the models that you've created, is it possible to say whether humans are responsible for ice shelf disintegration events? (laughs) Um, The simple answer is no, Uh, but I, I... I should say a bit more. Um, one thing I, I want to make absolutely clear is I'm not a climate scientist. My, I, I have an opinion on um, how human activities are affecting our climate, and um, I, I think my opinions are fairly consistent with most in the science community. Um, but really, my opinions are no more valid. Uh, than anyone else uh, who's looked at the evidence that is being put out there by climate scientists. Now, I really think that the question should be um, to what extent uh, the the effects that humans are having on the climate going to accelerate into the future. And also, how are we going to adapt as humans uh, in response to climate change. And that's really where uh, I see the, the research that I'm doing fitting in. Although, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not um, a scientist who um, uh, offers any solutions as, as to the way that we should adapt. Um, but the way I do see my work fitting in is that if we can improve models, uh, by including missing physics, such as interactions between ocean waves and ice shelves, then we have a better chance, or climate scientists have a better chance of predicting how our climate is going to change in the future. And then that is going to allow uh, decision makers, governments, and so on and so forth, to um, come up with policies that um, will be influenced by uh, the changes that we expect. Okay, so even sort of talking about prediction of things, um, so I'm interested in the fact that, I mean, that particular study we've talked about seems to be relevant to, I think, three particular ice shelves. So there's the Larsen A, B and Wilkins ice shelves in Antarctica. Is it possible to use the kinds of models that you've worked on to make predictions about the state of other ice shelves, like maybe, I don't know, ones in the northern or even the southern hemisphere that we just don't have such good data on? Yeah, yes, absolutely. And um, that's one thing that we're working on at the moment. Uh, the reason that uh, the disintegration events have taken place have been the Antarctic Peninsula is because the Antarctic Peninsula is the most northerly part of the Antarctic coastline and therefore has it experienced the most extreme warming. It gives us an indication of what might happen along the rest of the Antarctic coastline in the future. So what may happen is that we get uh, increasing sea ice loss around the uh, rest of the Antarctic coastline, waves reaching the ice shelves there, 
and ice shelves which have been weakened by warming temperatures. And so I, it is worth at least considering the possibility that uh, we will get more disintegration events occurring in the future. Okay, so on that as well, I mean, I guess this is a bit of a blue sky question, but from a physical point of view, is it possible to tell whether these changes are reversible? So in your model, is there any conditions under which we don't see disintegration through the ice wave interaction, or is it they're not that sophisticated? Uh, yeah, that's, that's a different model entirely. Um, my models are, are looking to predict uh, the impacts of the waves on the ice shelves. And then um, if we have information about how the ice shelves have been weakened, uh, then we could uh, come up with some prediction of the possibility of disintegration taking place. Um, but no, I don't think that's even what you're asking me. Um, you, you would want um, uh, an ice shelf model uh, which has thermodynamic effects in it, uh, which would uh, allow the ice shelf to grow uh, if the temperatures and other circumstances allowed it to. So those predictions could in theory be made. Um, but that's a, a more complicated and completely different kettle of fish. Okay. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a very different time scale to yep. uh, the type I'm looking at. I, I, I would just have uh, a fixed vision of what the ice shelf look like. So it's length, it's thickness, maybe some features like fractures in it, which are particularly important uh, for uh, interactions with waves. And um, yes, yeah, so I, I would look at uh, how the ice shelf responds to waves. Yeah. So you want to know if the wave, there's enough wave energy that the wave gets there. And if it does, what kind of damage could it possibly do? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Okay, great. Thank you, Luke. Awesome. Thank you. I think that's all we've got time for today, folks. But thanks for joining me, Sophie and Luke. It's been a really um, eye-opening episode for sure. I always feel like my brain expands whenever we have a maths episode. And listeners, thank you for joining us, listening to That's What I Call Science. We really love bringing you content and hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcast or follow us on um, your preferred social media channel. For now, until next time, thanks and goodbye. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science at all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. GemMaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. GemMaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.